This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Every now and then, we like to do an episode that shines a light on someone doing something interesting in the music industry. On today's show, that person is Melissa Locker, journalist extraordinaire. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. Today we talk to Melissa about the state of journalism, multitasking, and what Mick Jagger allegedly smells like. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. My guest today in studio, yay, is Melissa Locker. Hello. Melissa, welcome to the future of what? Thank you for having me. So Melissa is a freelance writer and producer, and I find you fascinating, and you write for all sorts of interesting publications like Time and The Guardian and Vanity Fair and Elle and all sorts of fancy publications. I do. Well, I try and keep myself busy. But I also, just as a freelance writer, I mean, the thing that I love most of all is being able to write about different subjects all the time. I never get bored because I get I write for so many different people so I can find amazing stories to tell. Like I write for Fast Company and I write about podcasts a lot. And I write about, you know, business and food and culture and kind of whatever I'm into. Yeah. Well, when I met you, you were doing previews of The Apprentice or Bachelorette or something like oh, that? Oh, recaps. Yeah. No, recaps. I still do those. <laughs> you still do those? <laughs> I still do those. Yeah. I recap The Bachelorette for time, oh which, gosh. you know, everyone should read them because the pro- I've been doing it a really, really long time. And I'm like the last <laughs> recap hanging on Time's website. And, you know, I assume every year I'm like, they're never going to have me do this again. And yet it keeps going. Oh, my gosh. So how much TV do you have to watch just to fulfill your you know obligations to your writing career? I try and kind of watch everything, but I'm starting to find that there's so much content everywhere that I can't possibly keep up. It's like Netflix will send you emails like, hey, 14 new shows that you love are now on Netflix. And then in addition to all those, I also, because I write about TV all the time, I also get access to the previews. So I get to see all the stuff that before it comes out, plus the stuff that comes out like afterwards, plus everything that's on network and all the other networks. And there's just too much. Like I can't keep up anymore. And it's (laughs) And in between that and like my overwhelming love of podcasts, I and, you know, the fact that I'm supposed to be like reviewing a bunch of music, I, yeah, I'm in like kind of constant content mode. Yeah. It's a little exhausting for my brain. Yeah. Do you have to just do that all day? I mean, you're also a mom. You have like obligations in life other than just sitting in front of a screen. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah. I mean, it's a little, your kid's sort of like, um... (laughs) Mom, pay attention. But no, I mean, I do my best. I'm also an excellent multitasker. So I can do things like watch TV while writing, which not a lot of people can do. But for some reason, my brain seems to work better that way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I can really just kind of binge a TV show while doing other things. 
My husband is like that. I wonder if that's because we always figured he had some form of Asperger's, but I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't put you in that category necessarily. But he's really like he does a lot better if he does two things at once. Yeah. And it actually it's funny. It also, I realized this when I was doing math, like algebra back in the day, is that I realized that if I had something to sort of distract the part of my brain that was getting bored with mm-hmm. doing math, that I would actually be able to focus on the math a little better. So I'd have exactly. the TV on in the background while I was trying to do algebra and it just it functioned better. Oh, and I don't know, it just keeps going. So, oh gosh. Well, one of the things that you do is you do music journalism. So how did you sort of come to, to do that? I mean, you do know a lot about music and a lot about the world of music. So how did you get into that? Yeah, well, I actually was one of those people who I started writing about music when I was in high school. And I worked for a paper called The Rocket, which used to be here oh, in yeah. Portland back in the day. And my editor thought it was kind of hilarious to send me out into the world to try and do music reviews because people in you know, listening to this, don't know this, but I don't look very old. And when I was like 17, I looked like I was about 12. And so he would send me out to do show reviews and they weren't always all ages shows. And he would just be sort of like, you can get in. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> so I do show reviews. I just remember like, I'm, I was trying to go to a show at Satyricon mm-hmm. and one of the guitars from Mud Honey was just like, she's my kid's sister, just let her in. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I can like sneak in and just sort of, you know, I don't think Satyricon necessarily cared that much right. as long as they didn't get caught. So I would just go and just started doing that. I was in high school and I just thought Portland had such an incredible music scene back then. And so I'd go to see shows and I'd photograph bands and I'd interview bands. And I just started writing more and more about music and about the music world. And I started to write about music issues. And I think one of the first big stories I did for The Rocket was about a prior restraint copyright issue where the band Negative Land, someone was trying to prevent, I think U2 actually was trying to prevent, or maybe it was after U2, some band was trying to stop Negative Land from releasing an album that kind of used a bunch of samples right. before it was ever, they basically were, try, it was kind of like prior restraint. Like they're trying to stop the album from ever getting released on the grounds that it could potentially infringe their copyright without right. that album ever actually coming out so people could judge for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first big thing. And that got me really interested in intellectual property and in kind of like the music business in general and like how these companies were functioning. So then I just kept writing about music like the whole time. And I love interviews. I love talking to bands. And it's just so fascinating to hear how people think about music and what their creative process is like. And I feel like I'm rambling. So <laughs> No, no, it's 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 great. And you've been interviewing a lot of sort of bigger and bigger celebrities lately. You've had some some big ones that you've talked to. Like Enya? Yes. Like yes. Enya. My I just so I interviewed Enya about three years ago for the Believer magazine, which is McSweeney's old like magazine. And then they kind of folded before the interview went up or went out in the in to print. And I just found out that it's back and it's actually in print right now. Ooh. So if you go get the Believer, you can read my interview with Enya where we talk about like angels and castles and what it's like living next door to Bono and <laughs> her, I, I can't remember if it's in there but her love of juicy couture sweatsuits oh, and excellent. yeah and I have to say meeting Enya was amazing yeah I highly recommend everyone should try and meet Enya do you know she's like the richest musician in the world no yeah how is that possible she's literally big in Japan wow yeah she's huge she apparently can't go anywhere without being 
Oh, that's fascinating. And so her love of Juicy Couture sweatsuits comes from that she can put on these sweatsuits and like a baseball cap and just go like, I think she visits a sister in Australia and no one recognizes her because one, no one really knows what Anyel looks like. And two, if you don't expect like, you know, the kind of the mom looking lady in the pink sweatsuit to <laughs> be the world's most famous musician. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah. I don't think I would know what Enya, like, honestly looked like right now. If yeah. she walked in this room, I She's very small know. and bird-like and had, like, the full-on, like, edgy mom haircut. Ooh, edgy mom. Yeah. Nice. But when I met her, she was at in a, staying in a suite in the St. Regis Hotel in New York and was wearing this white Christian Dior, like, sheath. Wow. And just had her hair and makeup done, even though we weren't doing a photo shoot. <laughs> and uh, it was just, you know, we just sat there and talked about the language that she and her co-writer wrote. They invented an entire language. And that's in addition to the songs that they wrote in, I think, Elvish for the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like full on. It's so amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Is there some sort of law in Ireland that stars have to live next door to each other? Is that why she I and Bono? I think it's just like maybe the castles just all kind of ended <laughs> oh, up in one district. The castles are all in one place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Castle district. <laughs> she wouldn't have been ever calling the cops on Bono, but I swear she must have. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the castles are too far apart. She can't oh, actually hear yeah. the, the noise. The walls are so thick They're so thick, stone. right? Like three <laughs> feet of stone. That'll do it. Yeah, the moats oh really dampen the sound. <laughs> <laughs> well, who else have you interviewed lately that you've been excited about? I spoke to John Cale, who is always fascinating. And I'm not, I don't know if I'm one of those really like incisive interviewers who really cuts to the heart of the matter, because I always feel like I end up talking about really dumb things. Like John Cale and I spent a lot of time talking about fast food and like what the fast food orders are. I'm like, why am I talking to like this guy from the Velvet Underground? He's had an incredibly illustrious career about what he prefers to get at, you know, the Taco Bell drive-thru. Well, I just asked Robin Hitchcock about his cats. Oh, I I love Robin Hitchcock. (laughs) Right. But that's exactly I I feel like it's more interesting on some level to talk about just their everyday like people's everyday lives rather than, you know, like you just sort of want to like have a conversation with these people and see get like some strange insight. Like I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of her last name and I'm sorry in advance. But Michelle and Yeocello. Uh-huh. She and I had this really great conversation about like what Mick Jagger smells like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So those are those are details that people want to know that they would never otherwise know. Exactly. What and does Mick Jagger smell like? Apparently lemony. She was oh. laughing too hard to really get the whole thing out, but I believe she said lemony. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Hilarious. And you know, that's why, he, you know, he's still cranking out babies at 75 years old. <laughs> yes, a lemony 70-year-old is definitely... So hot. <laughs> so hot, totally. So now you, you're working on a new podcast? Yes, but I'm not totally sure I can allow to talk about it yet. But yes, I have a new podcast project that's in the works, which is all music-oriented, and it, it will be fun. And I think a lot of people will want to hear it. But Whoa. it's a little under the wraps for now. And right. yeah. Is that, are you going to be an on-air I am going to be on air. Oh, that's awesome. So people have to get used to hearing my weird chipmunk-esque voice. Although <laughs> I do hear that sometimes I sound like Cheryl from Archer, which is fine. Oh, well, that, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she has a career. Th- exactly. <laughs> She's got a paycheck. That's, it all works out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
was Little White Horse by Quasi. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. I'm talking to journalist Melissa Locker. So what else is going on? Do you have any other things to enlighten us about? One thing we could talk about is how freelance budget keeps getting slashed. And so like I... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've had a column at L for about the past year where I would look at kind of the biggest songs from albums that are coming out and about, and I think I even wrote about Filthy Friends last month and about just sort of focusing on, you know, new albums that are coming out the next month that people should listen to and really the tracks that were going to be the big standouts from those albums. And then I just got word that they slashed all the freelance budgets. So it's all on hold, but it's just so typical for music journalism that you never know. Like I had a column at Vanity Fair focusing on what songs of the week people wanted to listen to. I used to do a lot of music reporting for time and that disappeared. And The Guardian has cut all a bunch of its freelance budgets. And so being in music journalism, it's so hard. Yeah. Is it different to be in like TV journalism? Are people still having budgets for you to write about shows? To an extent, I feel like somehow music journalism is people feel it's a little more expendable. I don't know if it's because of places like Pitchfork, which, you know, is free content. You just read it online. And places like like the Village Voice just announced that they're closing their print issue. Whoa. Which, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Like that has been, you know, like what else are you going to tile the subway floor with now? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, you know, you've been able to pick up the Village Voice on every street corner in New York City for however many years. Yeah. And they just decided to do away with that. And I don't know if all those print journalists are now going to be working online or if they're just a whole bunch of new print journalists gone. Or I used to have a column at Grantland interviewing 80s, you know, one hit wonders and like pop stars <laughs> and Grantland disappeared. And, and it's just like it's so constant, this turnover in what people are willing to pay for and what people think they want to pay for. And I feel like there's a big disconnect between editors who are like, oh, we definitely need someone to write about every single album and every single pop star I interview this and people don't read it. I don't know where the disconnect is or I don't know if it's really like the editor's bosses are the ones who are like, that doesn't pay. Wow. So it's a tough world to be in. Definitely. But you you feel like that's sort of journalism across the board. It's not just specifically the music industry. I still feel like people feel like the music industry is more expendable. And I just feel like that that content is the stuff that goes first. That's like they, you know, of course they're going to still write about Taylor Swift and Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber. But I do feel that when it comes to especially more kind of indie or challenging artists, it's so easy for them to just be like, oh, no one's going to read that. Hmm. Or like I know like at L, they basically stopped doing musician profiles because no one was clicking on them. Hmm. Even if it's kind of like bigger pops, like not even big pop stars, but like bigger pop stars and they're just like no one wants to read those and i don't know why and wow. i think they're interesting yeah. but really when was the last time you sat and clicked on a big musician profile i don't know exactly i think people like think they want to read it i mean <laughs> musician like journalists really want to write them but i don't know how many people necessarily are like i need to read you know two thousand words on this obscure on like proto-martyr right. or you know right and I think there's a niche of people who really want to, mm-hmm. but it's not 
I don't know if it's ever going to, I don't know if it's going back into the mainstream anytime soon. That's interesting. Do you, I mean, how do you feel then we're dealing with the kids who were like you, who were, you know, writing about music in high school and who were excited about music and wanted to kind of go into this career in in journalism? I mean, is there even a career for them in the future? I mean, I think there still are, you know, like consequences of sound and stereo gum and spin, but they all have like go through huge waves of layoffs and then hire new people. And MTV just laid off their entire editorial staff, which was honestly one of the best editorial staffs Mm -hmm. around. And it's now the infamous phrase of pivoting to video. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe if younger people want to be video artists, they'll have a great thing. Or maybe at some point editors and, you know, the people who make the budgets for these sites will realize that no one wants to sit and watch a video. Okay. Like as much as you may have not read a musician profile recently, when was the last time you clicked on a video and sat there and watched a 10 minute video of, I don't know, like anybody. Like (laughs) I have no time for online videos. I don't know who pivoting to video is supposed to be benefiting, but I have zero interest in watching videos. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it depends on what the video is about, I guess. Like music videos, sure. But if it's just like a... Talking just, head? Yeah, if it's just like someone watching somebody interview a band you haven't heard of for 10 minutes, I don't know. Yeah, no, I'd rather read that in print. That's interesting. I, I always, I, I remember MTV News back in the day and like Kurt Loder or whatever his name right. was. I was. I was always really annoyed by that. I was like, I don't want to watch this happening. Right. I mean, because I think the other thing with video is like it, you have no choice. Like when you're reading, you can kind of skim. You right. can be like, you can speed read through it and you can be done in two minutes. Video, though, you're trapped. It's not yeah. like you can like fast forward. Yeah, it's true. And I think maybe that's the whole point, though, is that they, you know, in this day and age where clicks and, you know, page bounce rates and things like that are so much more important. They, right. you know, making your eyeballs stick on that page to watch that annoyingly long video is how they're going to make money. Wow. And I, that's interesting because then it makes me think it's all going to devolve into the Jerry Springer show because that's what keeps eyeballs is you know right. people throwing chairs and stuff. Right. Or this is not really related to the music industry, but I was talking to the CEO of Air New Zealand mm-hmm. for a story, <laughs> not for fun. <laughs> and he was telling me about how they got people to start watching the safety videos on airplanes by making them just completely insane. Right. And they were the, really the first one to do that. And they were like, suddenly everyone started watching them. And like, that's the only way we could get people to do it. And I do wonder if like these magazines are going to start picking up on some of that and saying yeah. like, oh, okay, we can't get anyone to read an article for more than two minutes, but, you know, we can make someone watch a completely bananas video, <laughs> you know, for three whole minutes, yeah. which is just, you know, that's a lifetime about, in the web. It is. It is. That's like the best you can do. <laughs> I mean, what is it? It's like you you have to watch a video for 30 seconds or something to trigger your payment on YouTube. Yeah. It's, and and sometimes you can't get people to even watch it for 30 seconds. Well, especially if 10 seconds of that is an ad. Right, right, right. And they're just like, Ugh, I, I don't want to watch the ad. And yeah. And of course, YouTube has it so, they're so good at it, at yeah. making you sit there and suffer. Yeah. While watching like some Pillsbury ad <laughs> that you're like, or the, I love the ones that are for like male, like patterned baldness or like the Viagra ads. That's erectile dysfunction. Yeah. And you're like, this has so little to do with my life and I'm going to be <laughs> stuck here. And all I want to do is watch a kitten ride a Roomba around the room. And here I am watching a Propecia video for two hours. And like, well, and then they're also on kids things because my kid watches mm-hmm. YouTube videos, mostly of pe- other people playing Minecraft. That's a oh, yes. big thing for him. Yes. And then the ad in front of it will be just exactly like that, like La Vitra or something. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Why is my six-year-old <laughs> having like, to watch a La Vitra ad? <laughs> like, which yeah, algorithm has gone completely wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> there should be a complaint button right, on like, YouTube. No. Like, no, <laughs> not for my child. Thank you. was Hetty's Head by Kleenex Lilliput. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to the future of what? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. I'm talking to journalist Melissa Locker. So it's interesting that, I mean, you're sort of doing what now musicians are finding themselves doing, which is, you know, cobbling together an income out of multiple income streams. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's really where musicians are sort of, that's where we're at in the music industry these days. It's not just used to be album sales. And now it's album sales and touring and streaming and this and that. Merchandise. And like merchandise and a little mm-hmm. bit of publishing if you're lucky and maybe some licensing. and Yeah, I would know. just think, I, yeah, multiple revenue streams, I think, are just the secret to the economy. And like as much as we talk as like they're talking about the growth of the gig economy, mm-hmm. the gig economy is also a lot of people who have full-time jobs already and also need to like rent out Airbnb and drive Lyft on the weekends and do mm-hmm. this or that. And I think that's just sadly the future of the economy mm-hmm. as a whole is that we are all going to be looking for multiple revenue streams. Yeah. I was also thinking one of the things that I love and I've been seeing it more is musicians signing up for things that they probably never would have signed up for like 10 years ago. Like Bonnie Vare, I think is leading a one of those destination concert tour packages where you like go to Tulum and 
he's going to be playing a concert and everyone stays in the same resort. And like, I think it's Sylvan Esso and Bonnie Vare and somebody else. And if it's not Bonnie Vare, I'm totally just slandering him, but it's someone, I'm pretty sure it's Bonnie Vare. And Sylvan Esso and a whole bunch of other bands are all playing at this like resort in Cancun. And, you know, people come and buy into the tour package and they right. stay at like the Hard Rock Hotel in Tulum and they watch the bands play. And I just can't imagine people having done that, you know, Oh, God, no. years ago. Or 10 years ago. Yeah, no, yeah. you're just like... Because that's like one step up from Kid Rock's, you know, America cruise or whatever he oh does God. every yeah. year. There's so <laughs> many cruises now that are just like musicians that you're like, oh, I would almost go to that. Like the Backstreet Boys cruise. Uh, yes, and... you would all go to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would go to the Duran Duran cruise. Oh, I would go so to the Duran Duran cruise in one second. <laughs> Goodbye, family. Yes. <laughs> I may not nice come back. You all. John Taylor and I have some very important business. <laughs> to discuss on this boat. <laughs> yes, we do. Did I ever tell you about interviewing Duran Duran? No, you're going to have to tell me about Okay, that. so Duran Duran, obviously amazing band. Amazing. So the publicist at the time was this woman named Luke Berland, and she's amazing. And she's moved on from Columbia. And she, I think she was at Columbia. Anyway, she's moved on from where she was. And she calls me up, though, and she's just like, she's British, and I'm not going to do a British accent. But she's like, look, you just have to choose which one's your favorite, and I will set up the interview for you. <sighs> and I was just like oh my God, I've been waiting for somebody my entire life to ask me this question. <laughs> so I immediately blurt out John Taylor. Like I don't even think about it. Think about it. I'm like John Taylor, John Taylor. And so the interviews are all being held in this. I mean, I couldn't figure out where they would do these interviews because it's Duran Duran. Like you can't go out in public with them. But they had rented a very tasteful townhouse on the Upper East Side of New York. And it may have been like one of those like Harvard club type townhouse mm, things. Mm. And so you go in and it's like this elevator opens onto the floor and there's like five beautifully decorated rooms and you're ushered into one room and given a bottle of water and you just sit there and wait for the members of Duran Duran to show up to talk to you. <laughs> and I'm sitting in this gorgeous room, which is all like green leather sofas and tasteful gold and bookcases. And I'm waiting for John Taylor to come in. But instead, Simon Le Bon walks in. And he sits there and he's looking around and I'm just sort of like pretending it's super cool to just hang out with Simon the Bond. Like, <laughs> this is super normal. And he starts looking around and we're chatting because that's what I do. And he suddenly he's like, doesn't this look like the apartment in The Goldfinch? You have read The Goldfinch, right? And I was like, oh, Donna Tartt's Goldfinch? Of course I have. <laughs> and I actually think the only reason that I had ever even read The Goldfinch was just on the off chance that Simon the Bond was going to ask me about it. <laughs> So then he and I have a very strange conversation all about Donna Tartt's body of work. Simon Le Bon's a big reader. So he and I, you know, chatted about that. And then he just sort of wandered off. And then while I was sitting there trying to recover from this very normal activity, then John Taylor and Nick Rhodes walk in, sit down, and we have this whole conversation. Of course, John Taylor perches like right on the couch, right next to, like on the arm of the couch next to me. And I'm like, I can't. You know, you, you like this. <laughs> this isn't working for me. <laughs> and we just have this whole conversation sitting there. And then, you know, I just eventually am ushered off and into the distance and then just spent the next 20 hours with like the vapors. Oh, my like, God. Whoa. Were you recording it or were you writing it down? What did you do? I had a recorder. Oh, okay, good. And so, yeah, I sat there with, rec luckily, because I actually had two recorders, which is not normal because normally I don't really care if, if like if something disappears, I'll survive. But not that. Not that. Not no, that. Not so I had that. both my phone and my recorder. And I was just like, okay, yeah. let's talk. Were they normal or were they like not normal? John Taylor, pretty normal. Like pretty normal rock star dude. Nick Rhodes, slightly less normal. 
I was going to say, I bet Nick Rose is a little bit less yeah. normal. Yeah. A little bit of makeup, a little bit of strange flirting, which kind of confused me. Mm. Yeah. Confusing. John, yeah. John Taylor, much more like wearing his leather coat, sitting on the couch, like, okay, I've done literally 600,000 of these. <laughs> Let's just talk. But wow. yeah, so. You're I'm, a better man than I, Gunga Din. I don't know <laughs> if I would have gotten a word out. <laughs> it was definitely one of those, like, I'm just going to hold it all together. And, you know, I've done so many interviews over the world. There are very few that really freak me out. Bjork really sent me over the edge. But mostly be, that one was on the phone. And so I just kept kind of pulling the phone away and just being, staring at it me like, I am talking to Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> like that one was definitely weird and was it weird because she was weird it's just her yeah and like you're just her voice is so ethereal it's kind of like fairy like oh, and so like you're talking, talking to, to her and you're just like this is so strange <laughs> weird yeah and i mean she's she's totally fascinating and just you know she was you know we were having a great conversation and she's doing some you know very interesting work and like trying to preserve the headlands in iceland and you know we we're just having a good conversation but it really was just like i this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Always aware of who you're talking to. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I understand that. Well, Melissa Locker, I've taken up enough of your time. So I just wanted to say thanks for being with us today on The Future of What. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Quasi, Kleenex Lilliput, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.